So Pastor Michael last week, it was Pastor Michael last week, right? He took you through the first part of Exodus 32, which we just saw on the screen, which is the golden calf. Um, And so what we're going to now continue to read through is from verse 15, where Moses already has been informed by the Lord what's going on at the base of the mountain. And now he's going to have to go down and find out exactly what's going on. So if you refer back to the beginning of chapter 32 of uh, Exodus, um, you can see uh, in verse 7, God says, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. I like how the Lord says your people. (laughs) Your people, Moses. He says what? He says, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. So it's a hot mess at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And the people have done what people do really well, which has made a really big mess of things. And so as we continue now in our text, would you read with me verse 15 of Exodus 32? I'm reading from the ESV. And it does read like this. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, So Moses makes his way down. He's the only one at the top of the mountain actually in the presence of God. And he meets up with Joshua on his way back down. And it says, when Joshua heard the noise of the people, in verse 17, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Joshua is a military man, so he uh, speaks like a true military man. He hears shouting and says, there's war. And verse 18 But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf in the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it into a powder and scattered it into the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. Have you ever had a week in your life where everything just goes wrong? I had one of those weeks last week. If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen I posted on my story. We had quite a week in the Lance household. Um, It was like one thing after the next went wrong. So I believe it was Monday night, Uh, This was last week, so a week from, you know, last week, the week before this one. And I think it was Monday night. I wake up uh, pretty often throughout the night. I do not sleep super well sometimes, and I just had one of those nights. I kept waking up, and at about 3 a.m., I, no, it was about 1 a.m., I wake up to uh, the smell of smoke, which is always extremely disconcerting when you're asleep and you wake up to the smell of smoke. And we have a 11-month-old baby uh, sleeping in our room at the foot of our bed, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, our house is on fire. So I run downstairs, I sweep the house real quick, I'm using all the expertise that I don't really have about how to figure out what's on fire, and all I know is something's burning and we need to get out. So I run back upstairs, I grab my wife and my daughter, grab the dogs, and we get out of the house and I call 911. And this is just like, uh, as, I don't know, I thought it was really humiliating. My wife was like, I don't know why you're embarrassed. I thought it was pretty embarrassing. So the firefighters show up. It's this whole thing. You know, they don't, you you love that they're there, but you wish they'd come quietly. You know, you're like, shh, it's one in the morning. You know, and we are blessed. We live right by a fire station. So the response time for the fire department at our house is Amazing. They, they were there within like 45 seconds. I could hear them uh, firing up the siren at the engine station because they're that close. So I hear them roll around the corner. They literally just turn around the corner and there we are. And uh, they go inside. They're all geared up. You know, they go inside and police showed up first. Police are there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a whole thing. And after about 10 minutes of being in the house, a fire, uh, fire comes out and he says, all right, 
who was using the microwave. And my wife, it's like a Latin thing I've found, because uh, all my Latin friends and family do this. They keep everything in the microwave. The microwave is sealed. And so, uh, do you have Latin families? Do you guys do this? Do you guys put everything in the microwave? Okay, we've got shows of hands. So I'm not making this up. This is a real thing. So I've never known anybody to do this, except until I started dating my wife, and her mom puts everything in the microwave. We don't put anything in the microwave anymore. <laughs> After last week. So firefighter comes out. He says, I think there's a burger that got charred inside the microwave. Well, it was a cookie that my wife had baked earlier that evening. And it was so charred from the microwave that it was black and looked like a burger patty. And so we found out our microwave had been acting kind of weird. It shorted out in the middle of the night. And the fire department told me that they thought it was probably running for about an hour. And the cookie in the Ziploc bag in there and the little splash guard thing was all charred. Um, every time you opened it, the smell was so bad, that burnt plastic smell. Um, so thank God it wasn't worse. So that was the first part of our week. So then I, we're tenants, so that's one blessing of being a renter. I called my landlord and said, can you buy us a new microwave? Because this is your thing, man. Um, so <laughs> that's a blessing of being a renter. And so anyway, um, a couple days after that, our AC goes out. We've been having problems with our AC. So our AC goes out in our house. Our house is averaging like 83 degrees inside, which is not fun because then upstairs is like 86, 87. Sleeping in that temperature, not great, especially with a baby. So we've got all the fans out, all the portable ACs. So we need our AC fixed. Then my wife asked me to make something for her, and I'm, I do carpentry work, and I'm running some uh, poplar boards through my table saw. My table saw breaks. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And then my wife and I haven't been on a date in a couple months, it feels like. We've been so busy. And so we're going on a date. It was the last Friday night. We're going out. We drop off uh, our daughter at my parents' house. And about five minutes down Ontario Avenue, I hear, and my radiator goes out on my truck. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, we just want to go to dinner. And so I pull over. Luckily, the damage wasn't too bad. So last night, my father-in-law and I spent six hours in a 100-degree garage changing a radiator because if you do it yourself, it saves like $1,000. So that was my uh, last week. It felt like everything was going wrong. And it, maybe you've had a week like that. I don't recommend it. Um, if you can avoid it, I wouldn't recommend it. But imagine now for a moment my problems are pretty minimal in comparison to what Moses is now coming down to find at the base of Mount Sinai. And so Moses comes down, and what does he see? It says that the people were dancing and singing and worshiping an idol. Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai being in the very presence of God Almighty. He's holding the law in his hands and the people are already breaking the first two commandments. Can you imagine being Moses? This is like a, any parent can relate to this feeling. You're like, I left the room for five minutes and look at what you've done. That has to be the way that Moses feels. He says, I've been gone for, we don't know exactly how long he's gone. We know it was long enough for the Israelites to get into a lot of trouble, though. And so it didn't take long. And as we read last week, you, can you believe what happens? They say, as for this Moses guy, like they, they distance themselves from him. And this is often what we do when we are trying to get into uh, trouble. We try to like paint a, a false narrative. And so they, I don't know, this Moses guy, we don't know what happened to him. Now bear in mind that as this is unfolding and they are forming, Aaron rather specifically, is forming a golden calf out of the jewelry that he's collected and Aaron is going to be reprimanded because he's the spiritual leader over the nation of Israel and he was so uh, little backbone that he was able to cave to the very minimal pressure that the text gives us. It wasn't like the people threatened him with death. He basically just goes with exactly what they ask for and Bear in mind that the whole time this thing is unfolding, the very presence of God Almighty is right there. And we look at the nation of Israel and we read this text and we think, how could they be so stupid? The presence of God is literally an eye shot in the form of this crazy thunder cloud thing over Mount Sinai, and they say, we don't know where the Lord is. And yet, you and I do that all the time. Scripture says that 
Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, says, I leave with you my Holy Spirit. And we walk around in this life and we say, I, I don't know if the Lord's with me. I don't know where the Lord's been in this situation. Maybe, maybe he's abandoned me. And the presence of God has been promised to you and to me. And so it would be easy for us tonight to read this passage and think, what fools. But I would ask you that as we read the narrative and we read this account in history, that we would ask ourselves, well, do I do that? And the answer, unfortunately, is that yes, we've all done this. So as they're coming down the mountain, it says in 18, um, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And when they drew near to the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing. And it says, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. You know, there's a picture from the prophet in this moment. Oftentimes, prophets in the Old Testament do things to, uh, physical things to exemplify the pain or the rejection that God would be feeling. And, and actually, as Moses is at the top of the mountain, but he is able for a moment to enter into the pain that the Lord is now feeling, the grieving that he's feeling over the abandonment of his people. And Moses enters into this crazy moment with God Almighty where he can see a glimpse, an insight to what God's heart feels when his people are at the base of the mountain betraying him. And the scripture says about Jesus that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But the, the problem happened far before the Messiah took on flesh and entered into a human body. Long before, even back like we just saw in the recap video, back to the Garden of Eden, men has had it in their heart to rebel against God. Because we think that our ways are higher than his, that somehow we're more wise than he is. And at the root of all of these sins that we see unfolding in Exodus 32, they are whittled down to one word. Do you know what it is? It's pride. It's pride. Can you imagine how different of a story this would have been if Aaron, the older brother of Moses, would have said, you guys, no, we can't do that. Guys, the presence of God is right there. We can't make a golden calf. But instead, what does Aaron do? Sure, <laughs> bring me all your jewelry. Let's, let's whip this thing together. <laughs> and I, I can't help but think that there are many pastors that are a lot of Aaron's today. They're called to speak the truth. They're called to call people to repentance and to be freed from sin. And yet they pander to what the people want and they don't speak the truth and they dance around the truth in an effort to save face. But the Bible is clear that we're called to live a life of righteousness and holiness. And it says in verse 20, this is pretty brutal. I don't know if you've ever had your mouth washed out with soap as a kid. I did experience that one time. I remember it being about four or five. And you know, when you're a kid, you hear things on TV and you don't know what they mean. This is my plea. I've already repented of this. I'm not making excuses. We're going to talk about making excuses for sin. But guys, I was five, okay? Um, and uh, I remember my dad washing my mouth out with soap because some, you know, show was on the TV and the word idiot was used. And so my dad and I are wrestling and like he's shoving me around. And I remember as a kid, I have no idea what this word means. I was like, dad, you're an idiot. And my dad paused. It was like somebody hit the pause button. He was like, what did you just say to me? And it was like, you know, as a kid, your heart sinks into your stomach. You're like, oh no, <laughs> what have I done? So my dad took me, this is the only time this ever happened in my life, because I think it only took once for me. I wasn't a super rebellious child. Sat me on the bathroom counter, and he put some of that soft soap with the little fishies in it for kids. I remember it very vividly. And he put it on my tongue, and he said, we don't use words like that. I never used that word again uh, towards my father. <laughs> I'd like to say I never used it again, but I am a sinner. Um, and so, 
Yeah, but I don't know about you, but I've never had my mouth washed out with gold. That'd be a high price to pay. But it says in 20, he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it into a powder and scattered it into the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. He made them drink it. Man. Sin always looks good, but it always leaves a bitter taste in our mouth. And Moses said, you guys want gold? You want to worship gold? Here, literally take a drink of your own medicine. And you can imagine the people, Moses is in charge, and he says, come here, you're going to drink this, and you're going to get exactly what you wanted. And you can see the people coming up to the water one by one and taking a drink, and you can see them, oh, gosh, that's gross. And you see the consequences and the ramifications of sin, and you see that ultimately sin is always packaged in really beautiful packaging. Satan has a way of doing that. The scripture says he's a master of deceit. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. You have to know this, friend, in the battle that you are fighting against temptation and against sin, that it always looks good. And then when you indulge and you you cater to the flesh, it always leaves a bitter taste behind. And you have to know that when you're facing that moment of temptation, there is always a way of escape. The Lord promises that he will always provide a way of escape. But it is not a way of escape that you can find within your own strength. And clearly we see that because Aaron is obviously not operating in the strength of the Lord as he stands before the people. No, he caves to the pressure and he does exactly what they ask. You know, if you go back to verse four, you can see exactly what happened. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And then he has the audacity to say, look, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Are you kidding me? And what blows my mind is that the people are like, yeah, there they are. And the presence of God is literally in eyeshot over Mount Sinai. And they stand in the distance, betraying the very God who's brought them deliverance. It's an embarrassing moment in the history of man. We are always blind to the ramifications and the consequences of our sin in the midst of being tempted. The only way that we have the insight and the ability to see beyond the moment of temptation is through the Holy Spirit. If you want to overcome temptation and not fall by the wayside and fall to pressure of our society and your family and those who might be pressuring you to do something or say something that you ought not say or do, you have to allow God's Holy Spirit to give you insight, to give you fresh vision, if you will, to be able to see beyond the moment because sin is always momentary and temporal. And God's perspective is far beyond that. And so if we can remove ourselves from that moment of weakness and say, Lord, uh, this is often a prayer for me in the midst of temptation is, Lord, show me the truth because I know this is a lie. So reveal the truth to me, Lord. We have to be on guard. And the people of Israel are are not even aware that as they're down, they're dancing and, and the scripture implies that they're getting drunk, that there's nakedness, that there's just total immorality happening around this golden calf. It's a, it's a total, it looks like a pagan worship ceremony because that's exactly what it is, except that it's God's chosen people doing it. The temptation and the idols in our lives have to be annihilated. Too many Christians make the mistake of thinking, I can just put this in the closet instead of putting it out on the street to go away with the garbage. And so that temptation is lurking right around the corner. 
And so the man who struggles with his pornography addiction continues to go back to pornography time and time again because he's not really annihilated the idol in his life. He's left opportunity for sin to take him captive again. The man or the woman that struggles with lust continues to make provisions for the flesh so that they can fall to that lust over and over again because they've not really annihilated that temptation and that idol in their life. The person who struggles with gossip continues to struggle with gossip because they haven't really said, I'm going to eliminate this idol in my life and I'm going to honor God with the words that I speak. James 1, 12 through 15 says, Blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted uh, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, hear this tonight, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin has fully grown, brings forth death. I love the book of James. It's my favorite book because it's always like a swift punch in the gut, and we need it. And James says, if you keep going down that road, it will lead to death. And I've seen it, friends, I've seen it. As a pastor, I've seen marriages crash and burn because of addiction that's not dealt with, because of issues in marriages that are swept under the rug over and over again and they're not dealt with. I've seen people walk away from their faith because issues are welling up, bitterness is welling up inside of them and they continue to just sweep it under the rug. It's not a big deal, I have it under the control, I've got it. And that's why I said that the root of all this comes back to one word, it's pride. Because we convince ourselves, no, I can handle it. I've got it under control. How many of you have said that right before something crashed and burned? I've got it. It's a famous last phrase in movies before everything goes wrong. I'm fine. I got it. We're good. And then everything falls apart. There's two things that if you take notes tonight, I would have you uh, write down. Everyone worships something. That's number one. It is written on our human hearts and in our design to find something to adorn. This is, after all, part of God's design. But we reject the one true God and we turn towards our idols. Like James says, we fall to our own desires. And secondly, when anything takes the place of Christ as Lord of our life, things quickly get out of control. And you've experienced it, I've experienced it, the moment that something takes the place of Jesus on the throne of my heart, things fall apart very fast. Amen? Amen? And so we have to be on guard that we preserve that throne only for him. There's a beautiful song by Fulwickham that says, let my uh, heart be a temple and may my temple have a throne and may the one who sits upon it be you and you alone. I love that idea that he would be the only one who takes residence in my heart. And like I said, it'd be easy to look at the Israelites' behavior in this passage and think, oh my gosh, how could they be so foolish? But if we look inward for a moment, we do the same thing. We turn our back on God, we break his commandments, we cheat on him, and we do it over and over again. We choose to worship false gods and make idols. And in the new covenant, God's presence is not limited to some tent or a mountain but it is openly accessible to anyone who would call on him. So how much more are we out of excuses to commit idolatry? I don't have to go to a sacred holy place or the top of a mountain to experience the presence of God. Because praise the Lord, the veil was torn. And so we are out of excuses. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We attend church week after week, and yet we let idols in our life ultimately take our worship instead of Jesus. 
On a practical level, maybe you sit through the times of music during a church service or the times of teaching and you scroll through social media, you check your emails, your mind is consumed and overcome by worry and the bills you need to pay and the things that you need to get done. You name it. We can be in the church, in a worship service, in the midst of God's people, and yet still our hearts can be full of idolatry. And so tonight, I get it. I am a busybody. My grandma Ann always says, oh, you're a busy boy. She said that my whole life. I know that about myself. And so I have to be on guard against busyness. And I have really had to make an effort in the last five years of my life, because I've been married five years now, to make my wife and now my daughter the priority after the Lord. And that means I can't just say yes to everything and fill my schedule. And even more so on a greater scale, when we are sitting in church, you can be in a garage, but you are not a car. You can be in church every week, and that does not make you a born-again Christian. You know, I think of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, does it say a few people in Matthew 7? No. It says, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That has to be one of the most sobering, sobering verses in all of scripture. Jesus says, many will come to me. Beware that this is not you, that you're just going through the motions of what it looks like to be a Christian. You know all the right things to say, and you could insert yourself into this verse for a minute and say, Lord, but I sat in church every week, and I knew the answers to the questions, and I served in a ministry, and yet your heart can still be far from the Lord. Me being a worship leader at a church doesn't make me a Christian. Now, I certainly hope that as a worship leader at a church, I'm a Christian. My gosh. But that doesn't save me. You being a regular attender and a member at Living Truth Christian Fellowship does not make you a Christian. And can I be candid tonight? I've already been candid. It's too late. We have so many people that sit in the pews every week and they are here faithfully. And, to, and for that, I'm thankful. But I would much rather you be, uh, you know, busy and, you know, maybe you miss church occasionally, but your heart is truly surrendered to Jesus. Because you can do all the right things and still be far from the Lord. And I have been in those seasons where I knew the right things to say and I knew the right things to do and I was serving on the worship team and I was struggling with who I was as a Christian and where my identity lied and where my allegiance lies. And it is easy to get into that mode. And so be on guard. And so it was with Israel. Their gods were fashioned by their own hands, by the hands of Aaron. They had seen God's faithfulness. They had seen his provision. They had seen his deliverance. And yet their hearts were far from him. You know, A.W. Pink, uh, commentating on this section, says he defines an idol as anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in and of itself. Yet, if it absorbs me, if I be given, uh, if it be given the first place in my affections and my thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be my busyness, a loved one, or my service for Christ. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord's ruling in me, in my uh, practical way, becomes an idol in my life. Now, I know that this is a heavy section tonight, and my goal is not to, uh, you know, kick you out the door and say, now shape up. Sometimes these Old Testament passages can feel like that. But as we continue through this section, you'll see God's grace and his mercy, and we will talk about that tonight but I do have a question for you. 
Is there anything in your heart tonight that displaces the Lord? Is there something in your life that competes with him for your attention? What do you desire? What do you praise? What do you think about? What do you pursue? This is a question that every single person who confesses Christ needs to ask themselves, not once a year, not once a week, but every morning. Who's going to be the Lord of my life today? Is it going to be Christ or is it going to be this or that? And all of us are going to struggle because there is a war that is waging, a war that's been waged against your soul and against my soul for my affection, for my attention. So let it be Christ. Riken commenting says, all too often Christians try to deal with their idolatrous um, behavior by putting them in the closet rather than taking them out to the trash. I was referring to this earlier. We pretend that we have cleaned house, spiritually speaking, but in fact, sin is still lurking in the cupboard, ready to come out the next time we are tempted to open the door. <laughs> Throw it away. Get rid of it. If you're Moses, grind it up into a powder and then remember how bitter it tastes. I wouldn't recommend doing that. But if it's something in your life that needs to go, get rid of it. Because the scripture calls us to take swift and serious action against our sin. And if you ever struggle with the idea of how serious your sin is, just be reminded of the blood that had to be shed on the cross at Calvary to deal with that sin. That is how serious God takes our sin. Let's continue in verse 21. Moses uh, said to Aaron, so now he confronts Aaron, okay? So we've seen what's happened. The golden calf has happened. He deals with the calf um, in a pretty extreme way, but it's, it's necessary. I think it's appropriate. And notice, this is worth noting, the Lord does not reprimand Moses for the way he deals with this because we can, and that is confirmation to me as the reader of this text that Moses' anger is justified and righteous because we do know that the Lord later is going to rebuke Moses and punish him for acting inappropriately and misrepresenting him as the prophet to Israel. But in this moment, we know that Moses' actions is righteous anger. It's, it's actually what God wanted him to do, which was grind up that stupid cow and make the people taste it. The Lord doesn't reprimand him. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And the story just keeps getting better. Aaron said, Brother, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. You can just see Aaron sitting there trying to like, you know, get his way out of this one. He's trying to squirm out of it. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us a God who shall go before us. As for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And look, man, I don't know what happened. I threw it into the fire and out came a calf. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's just getting more and more ridiculous. And, and what Aaron doesn't know is that his younger brother just was told by God Almighty exactly what happened. And he's lying to his face. And this is often what we look like when we are confronted with the reality of our sin. We look like a child who has cookie crumbs all over his face and is like, I didn't do it. I don't know what happened. I just threw those rings and jewelry into the fire and poof, a cow. Give me a break. Moses sees right through it. But notice Moses also seems sympathetic. If anybody knew how difficult the people of Israel were, it was Moses. And so I think that for a moment, Moses maybe assumes that they must have done something awful or threatened him with death. But Moses also doesn't hesitate to hold Aaron fully responsible for what had happened. No matter what the people had done, Aaron had no excuse he had to take responsibility for what happened. As Israel's spiritual leader, he was the one who had led the people into such a great sin. And then Aaron tries to blame others. He says, well, Moses, you know, you know how the people are. And I mean, you've been gone a long time. 
I don't know if you forgot, but they really like to sin. And by the way, why were you gone so long? This is often what we do when we're confronted with the truth, isn't it? Well, you did this. You do it in your marriage. Your wife says, you know, I really don't like it when you do that. Yeah, well, you do this. You do that. Always goes well, by the way. Usually the conversation just gets really healthy from there when you do that. No, it does not. Aaron tried to exonerate himself by saying, it's the people who made me do it. This is what people usually do when they're confronted with their sin, says Riken. First they tell people to back off, then they shift the blame, and of course there's always somebody to blame. My parents didn't love me, my husband didn't care for me, my wife wasn't meeting my sexual needs, my elders didn't handle the situation right, my boss didn't trust me fairly, he was yelling at me, she pushed me, they went behind my back, everyone else was doing it. Excuse after excuse after excuse. And it's almost refreshing isn't it? When you talk to somebody and you say, hey, you know, man, uh, you, you did this thing and actually, you know, it rubbed me the wrong way or it hurt my feelings and somebody just says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, we're almost like ready to put the gloves on. And then when, when somebody says, you know what? I didn't even realize it came across like that. I'm sorry. You're almost like, oh, well, okay. Well, all right. what do we do now? I guess we just forgive each other and act like Jesus. I guess. Question for you. When you fail, do you own up to it? This is a hard one. No one likes being confronted. If you like confrontation, there is something wrong with you. It's uncomfortable. It's not normal. It's weird. But sin has a way, as Scripture says, of finding you out. That is to say, your, scripture, uh, your sin will always be brought into the light at some point or another. And so you may think right now that that thing in your life, you're real good at hiding it. And you might be. Maybe nobody knows. The Lord knows. And sooner or later, friend, either you can confess it and repent of it and get the accountability that you need, or the Lord will bring it to light in his time and it will be far more humiliating. I'm not trying to scare you, but you should probably come clean now. Because not to mention, almost always when we have hidden sin in our life, we think it only hurts us, but it hurts other people around us. You know, a well-known pastor, I just got word this morning, has been asked to take a leave of absence uh, because of some misconduct and I will commend the church. I don't feel it necessary to put his name out there because I think he humbly accepted the leadership of the elders and he's taking a leave of absence for disciplinary reasons, but also they put it for developmental reasons. He was very humble as he addressed his church. He was apologetic. He owned what he did and they operated according to Matthew 18 and they brought it before the church and they handled it very well. And it was refreshing to see a church handle misconduct from a leader in a very healthy way. And there was ownership on the part of the pastor. And honestly, what he did was pretty minimal, not to minimize it, but it was pretty light compared to some of the things that have hit the news circuits lately. And I loved how the elder board stepped in and said, okay, you need to take a break. We need to restore you. We need to see discipleship and development happen. And you need to take a break. And it was refreshing to watch it unfolded in a way that honored the Lord. And so, I would just ask you to think about that tonight. How do you respond when you're confronted with sin? Especially because it's almost always the people who love you the most that are willing to actually say something. So instead of turning on those people who love you, try to take a step back for a moment and ask the hard question, okay, is what they're saying really true? And where can I improve? How can I honor the Lord in this? You know, we could uh, call what Aaron did in this little section a lot of different things, but what Aaron did is he lied. He lied to Moses' face about what happened. He dodged a bullet, and he conveniently leaves out some incriminating details to try to save himself. But what we know is that Aaron told the people to bring the jewelry 
and he made it. And then he said, you're God. Aaron is guilty and he knows it. Listen, we need to be like David in Psalm 51. David said, I know my transgressions and my sin. It is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The prodigal son in Luke 15, when he comes back home, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The tax collector in Luke 18 says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Until we take responsibility, full responsibility for our sin, we cannot be saved. I believe that is a fundamental principle of Christianity. Until I take full responsibility, I'll say it again, for my sin, I cannot be saved. Well, why? Because salvation is for sinners. And if you don't think you're a sinner, then you don't think you need a savior. You know, I I heard many years ago, a pastor at a conference say, lifeguards know that it is always more difficult to save someone who's drowning, who's trying to save themselves. In fact, a lot of times when someone is trying to save themselves and is struggling, they can end up drowning themselves and the lifeguard. In the same way, it is often the moment of surrender or ultimate exhaustion. Sometimes lifeguards will sit off just in saving distance and let the person struggle until they either exhaust themselves or calm down until they swoop in and save them. Because oftentimes we have to hit that point of exhaustion And recognition that I cannot do this on my own. I'm going to need some help. And that is the defining moment in the life of a Christian. When you can say, I can't do this on my own. And scripture calls us to recognize our need for a savior. And so, as 1 Timothy, Paul writing says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full Acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The free gift of eternal life is for sinners who confess their sins, admitting they are unrighteous before God. We live in a culture that refuses to take responsibility for their actions. It is always somebody else's fault. Just turn on the news for a minute. Well, I act like this because so-and-so did this to me and while so-and-so cheated me and this and that. And it's always some excuse. Like I said, it catches us off guard almost when somebody owns up to what they've done. Verse 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the uh, derision of their enemies, 26, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp. The story continues to get more brutal. And Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, but ultimately the word of the Lord. And on that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Sin ultimately always has its revenge. It finds us out and it wreaks havoc. And God is just. And so since he is just, discipline had to happen. The Hebrew word for running wild, or as the ESV reads, broken loose, the NASB reads out of control, is parau. And it has the sense of loosening or uncovering. The term is often used for nakedness. Here, at the very least, it means that the Israelites were loose in their morals. And perhaps also they were committing sexual sin. Their idolatry had led to immorality, as idolatry 
always does. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Well, what do you mean, Shane? Maybe an idol in your life is lust. Think about the natural road that lust, when it's conceived, as the scripture says in James, gives birth. When it reaches its full potential, what does lust lead to? Sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, sexual sin. Maybe the issue for you tonight is gluttony. You always overeat. And yes, gluttony is a sin in the Bible. It's not hard to follow the road. When gluttony continues and goes unchecked, it leads to what? Unhealthiness. You're, you're not healthy. Your body starts to reap the consequences. I could give you a thousand examples and they would all lead to the same place. And so we have to be on guard against the things that are idols in our life. This is why many theologians regard discipline as an essential mark of the Christian church. Unless there is good discipline, hear this, the church ends up looking exactly like the world. And we see it. I see it. You see it. There are people who are professing Christians, but nothing about their life sets them apart. And the people of Israel are called to be a royal priesthood to be holy, to be set apart. And if you now take a step uh, further into history and you see us here in 2022, you as a Christian are called to be holy and set apart for his good purposes. Are you set apart tonight? Do you look different than the world? And can I tell you, make no mistake, you will be mocked for taking a stand and setting yourself apart by both Christians and non-Christians alike. I've experienced it. I've been at parties with professing Christians and a game begins to happen and the content of that game is very inappropriate. And there's been times where my wife and I have stood up and exited and it's extremely uncomfortable. And we've even been challenged after the fact, well, come on, was it really this or that? And we've had to say, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't something that we should be partaking in. And so we excused ourselves. And unfortunately, if I'm being honest, I've been on the other side of that too, where I've allowed things to take place that should not have taken place. Conversations to continue that shouldn't have continued, and it doesn't honor the Lord. And that, the, the Bible often refers to that type of behavior as shrinking back. And Peter did that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied him three times. And just a moment before, Peter had said, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll fight for you. And then a woman in the courtyard, as he's warming his hands by the fire, says, I think I've seen you with him. And he says, be quiet. I don't know the man. I don't even know who he is. Oh, how fickle we are. And yet, God's grace looks like this, that later Peter is restored, and Jesus says to Peter, your name is Peter, you're a rock. And on this rock, what? I'm going to build my church because our God is gracious. I love Peter because I'm like Peter sometimes. I love David because I'm like David sometimes. There's moments where I feel like I'm a man after God's own heart and there's moments where I am acting like an utter fool. Amen? Hey, hey. <laughs> and so we have to be on guard because we can fall so quickly You know, if you've made the decision to follow Christ, then you are with Christ. But there's no neutrality in this life. You are either for him or you are against him. There's no in-between. The Bible doesn't leave any room for anywhere in-between. In fact, Jesus, speaking to the most religious people in the New Testament, they had all the religiosity down. They knew all the right things to say. They had the right garb on. They knew the word. They knew the Torah. They were committed to the works of religion. And Jesus said, you say that you worship your father Abraham, but you are sons of the devil. 
That's not leaving any wiggle room for neutral space. He didn't say, well, you guys are on the fence. (laughs) Jesus said, you guys think that you're right before God, but you are actually serving your father, the devil. Jeez, that is tough stuff. And we say, well, hey, judge, judge not, brother. Only God can judge me. The world loves this one. Your non-believing friends love that one. They don't know any scriptures, but they know that one. Hey, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. They have no idea what the context of that scripture is, which is that Jesus is talking about judging hypocritically, which is he's saying, if you're sinning, don't go to somebody and then rebuke them on that same sin. Don't be a hypocrite. But you and I make judgments all the time. You got to decide when you're driving down the road, am I going to get Taco Bell or Del Taco? And you better choose wisely. That's not a good example, but you know what I mean. And so we have to be careful. And yes, we need to be above reproach. You know, it's a horrific loss that happens here. But many could have perished. Because let's take a step back for a minute and rewind the tape. What did God want to do? He wanted to wipe them all out. And Moses, you know, the scripture says that he reminds God. God doesn't need to be reminded. It's just a way of saying that Moses says, Lord, but, you know, what will the Egyptians say? Will they say, oh, look, the God of Israel delivers his people just to wipe them out a couple months later? This is a loose paraphrase of this conversation. This is the Shane translation. And... So Moses speaks to the Lord. He says, Lord, don't spare them. But the Lord doesn't say, okay, I'm going to spare them all right after that, right? No, he says, okay, but I'm still going to carry out judgment. And so then this is what it looks like, is that the Levites of Moses' own tribe step up, and he says, you guys have to now carry out God's judgment because God is just. Now, can you imagine being somebody who steps up and says, I'm going to side with the Lord God. And then Moses gives you the orders. And you have to go into the camp where you've had friends and maybe family. And I will say this. This makes this section more palatable. I don't know. This is conjecture. We don't know exactly what happened here. But I suppose that this does make it a little more palatable. In all likelihood, the Levites only killed the instigators behind the golden calf the men who were most responsible for Israel's sin. When God told them to kill their brothers and neighbors, the point was not that each man had to go kill his closest friends, but that whoever was guilty had to be punished and that the Levites were not to let any ties of blood or friendship hinder them from their service to God. They were to show no partiality. That's what the command is saying. But don't get me wrong, it is a difficult section of Scripture. And Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He says in Matthew 10, Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter is more, uh, than, that more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, I think we have softened Christianity in our Western culture. We've danced around some of these real truths that Jesus, the guy that we're following after, said with his own mouth. And I am all about welcoming people into the doors of the church. I pray that any person in any walk of life would show up here, realize that there is the presence of God Almighty in this place, and that they would become uh, born again. But I will tell you, we have done people a disservice by dancing around these real truths and these words that don't sound so loving. But then when you look at who's speaking them, He is the one who has exemplified love to the greatest extent. There's no question of Jesus being loving. Scripture says there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and for me at the cross. There's no question of if Jesus was loving. And yet, he says, if you love something more than me, you're not worthy of the call. And that might sound harsh, but it's exactly what he, he said, exactly what needed to be said. And just as I suspected, there is no way we're going to finish this chapter because there's still five more verses. But I'll tell you this, God's grace 
abounds. God's grace abounds. And so as we close tonight, I know that this has been a heavy word. In fact, it was heavy studying it. I I found myself repenting and asking the Lord to forgive me for my own shortcomings. And what it really reminded me of is the fact that we have, I think, weakened the gospel message in America because we've been so afraid of what people might think of us. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you found yourself on a pretty regular basis shrinking back from speaking the truth. I'm a pastor and I feel that. There have been times where I'm at the gym or I'm at the coffee shop, I'm at the store and somebody says something and yeah, it's a lot easier to not push back. It's a lot easier like in Madagascar, you guys don't just smile and wave, boys, right? That's a lot easier. I look around the room and I have friends in this uh, room right now. I know you work in construction. I've worked in construction and I know what it's like to be in construction with a bunch of those guys out on the field. Usually the conversations are not about Jesus. Do you take a stand in those moments and say, I'm not gonna engage in this. I don't have to shut it down per se, but I'm not gonna partake. Maybe for you it's, it's friends who are an unhealthy influence on you whether it be with alcohol or gossip or just any sort of misconduct or sinful behavior, do you take a stand? Maybe your friendships are your idol tonight and you're so afraid of losing those friendships that you'd rather sin against God Almighty than risk a friendship by saying, I'm not gonna do that. Maybe it's just around the water cooler at work and the conversations that are taking place and you partake knowing that it's not right. I could give a thousand examples of what it could be for you, but you know what it is. Don't let those things be an idol in your life because if you are compromising your Christian values, then they're becoming an idol because you are allowing them to take precedent over what God has asked you to do. And so I know it's a struggle. I'm not gonna stand up here for one second and pretend that I've got it all together or that I'm really good at that. But I will tell you this. It's my last thing. We were at a coffee shop several months ago, my wife and I, a band if you guys want to come out. And um, we were uh, with, uh, the, uh, it was just her and I, and we were at a coffee shop and one of the baristas, something came up about abortion. And um, I wish that I always was this bold, because I'm not, um, But I just felt like an undeniable tug from the Lord, like, you need to tell her the truth. Because her opinion about abortion was basically what you hear. Well, you know, I just think it's the woman's right to choose. And, you know, I think that they should have that right and that right and that right and the woman's right. And and I was like, okay. And and I was very respectful and and gentle. I wasn't like, repent, you know, screaming at her in the coffee shop. No, I heard her out. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. I do. I said, can I give you a different perspective? And she was very open to the conversation. And I said, what if the conversation is less about a woman's right and more about the life of the baby, though? And what that did, I, I could feel my soul, like, like the, the, the two characters and uh, like the cartoons, I could feel them wrestling, like, no, 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 don't say that. What are you doing? No, 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 no. And I watched the, the Lord work in that moment because a conversation took place that actually bore some fruit and I could tell that it got her thinking from a different perspective. And all it was was obedience. And so next time you're in a moment like that, and trust me, all you got to do is go into the grocery store and the moment will present itself because there's a lot of lost and confused people right now who need the hope of Jesus Christ. And all it takes is a moment of surrender and saying, Lord, I'm not gonna worry so much about if this person hates me on the other side of this because that could happen. But uh, hello, he said, they hated me, they will hate you. That's in here. (laughs) So just be willing to step out in faith and see what the Lord can do. And if the result is this great conversation, praise God. If they scream at you and kick you out of the place, praise God. Because he also says that if you suffer on my behalf, That's a blessing. 
Lord, thank you for uh, just the opportunity that we've had to look at your word tonight. I know it's been a long and heavy passage. There's so much to cover, so much more we could talk about. Um, But Lord, we know our time is limited. And um, I just thank you that you are faithful. You are faithful, Lord. You you continue to lead us and your grace abounds when we fail. And it it is undeniable we're going to fail and we have failed. And yet time and time again, you pour out grace and mercy and you spare us the wrath that we deserve and ultimately have spared us because you took our place at the cross. And we have picked this last song to sing together because it is so appropriate that we will not bow to idols, we'll stand strong and worship you. And if that puts us in the fire, then we'll rejoice because you're there too.